right. Well, thank you, Jonathan, and thank you, guys, worship team. Grab your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, we're going to pick up where we've been. We're going to be in a new place, so really, because we've been in, we've been doctrinally uh, discovering a lot of uh, interesting stuff for the last few months in this this uh, most challenging book. But today we move toward the uh, the really begin the the nuts and bolts, the practical application. Not to say there won't be some doctrine and some theology, which we'll get to in just a moment. As you find your place there, I, I want to. Uh, uh, just, uh, I, I need to say this. I got some dear friends here from North Carolina, Johnny and Judy Smith. And Johnny, if you'll just wave your hand. Uh, they, uh, when I became a youth pastor in North Carolina, their, their son was in my first youth group and he was one of the advocates of, of me dating Miss Dale. He was like, Mike, you're, my math teacher's a babe, brother Mike. You need to meet her. And, uh, those were the days, uh, so many years ago, but we love them. They, they're in, uh, San Antonio and, and they got some friends with them, but I'm so glad you guys came and, and, uh, just glad that you're here. And, uh, so appreciate you guys. Good to see you. Uh, but I, I kind of want to start and, and, uh, and, and the reason I'm, I'm going to mention North Carolina a little bit has nothing to do with you guys, so please just hang with me. But, but, but does it disturb you at all, uh, to read the headlines? Uh, and I don't know if you're much on getting online or reading the lines or, or if you even do the old school and watch the news, but, but does it, but does it disturb you or bother you in the least at, at what's transpiring in our nature, uh, in our world? Do you ever give any thought to, uh, the religious climate of our day, and, and maybe even most importantly, have you ever taken the thought to step back and evaluate this culture in which we live and, and, and just think about what the long-term effects uh, of the current cultural hot-and-button issues uh, that permeate our culture. I mean, what what is going to be the long-term effects of everything that's going on? I mean, things like, uh, when, I, when I say cultural or hot-button issues, I'm talking about, you know, racial tension, which is really in my lifetime has kind of been there, but it's back in the forefront. There is uh, the issue of immigration and all the things that go along with that. Uh, the idea of human trafficking, there's so much uh, sex trafficking of humans, mostly women, but not all. Uh, uh, not just in the, around the world, but we see it. I mean, it's, it's in our own backyard. Uh, you'll learn more about that, uh, a little bit, uh, what we want to do about that at the, at the end of the service. Um, but there's religious freedom as it relates to gender identity and marriage and, and all the co- controversy, uh, surrounding that. Uh, then there's the freedom of speech, particularly if your speech is not Politically correct. Let me give you a quick example. Uh, I think it was either last week or the week previous at the University of Tennessee, there was a group promoting Sex Week where they were they wanted to offer uh, teaching to all the college uh, kids, especially the freshmen, uh, on the virtues of lasciviousness and how to live an ungodly life. And, of course, the, the administration was all for that, and that's a good thing. And then I read, uh, even this week, a, a young lady, I think she was at UT Chattanooga, but she, uh, actually was a supporter of Donald Trump. She's a, a, she was elected by her peers to serve in the student senate. And, and there, and a lot of people are calling for her to resign because she supports Trump. So you got this one hand where they want to muzzle her because of what she believes. And then on the other hand, you got a group that they want to, 
They want them to be free to, to say whatever they want. And it kind of gives you this idea there is a tension in our culture between uh, good and evil. And there's just that, there's that tension. You see it in, in, uh, in, in, in some of the race stuff. You see it in some of the immigration stuff. You, you see it in, in so much of our behavior on both sides of the aisle politically. There's just a tension in our culture. We see it in the, uh, in the issue of, of uh, religious liberty and, and marriage and family. Uh, in addition to that, there's the continual rise of, of terrorism across our globe. There's ISIS, there's Boko Haram, Al-Qaeda, and just the militant groups. Um, and, and you see that, you know, and it's not just Islam. We, we see stuff in, in India with the, with, uh, with the militant Hinduism. I mean, there's just, there, there's just a lot of stuff that's happening in our world. And in, in, in our culture, and I guess my question is, do you wonder what kind of world our kids are going to grow up in? And, and maybe even more, how, how, how do we live out a gospel or live out the gospel in a culture that is so uh, at such odds, if you will, to what we hold dear and what we believe to be true? This week, our staff and, and, and some of our... Uh, uh, some of our lay people, we went to a conference on ministering uh, from the margin and, and how do you proclaim the gospel uh, in a culture when, when as a church we no longer have the home field advantage. I mean, when I was, when, uh, to quote Jerry Clower, when I was a young and growing up, you know, back, way back when, a church was kind of the fashionable idea. You, even if you weren't really a God follower, church was kind of something you did. It was kind of socially acceptable. You might do it because of business. If you had a business in town, you probably need to be a part of the Baptist or the Methodist or Catholic, but you kind of need to fit somewhere. Uh, that was just kind of the, the, the culture of the day. Well, when we kind of had the home field advantage then, but, but now we don't have the home field advantage. Uh, Christianity and biblical values and, and what we hold to be dear and near to us and true to us. Uh, and, and if you believe that, like we tend, we're being pushed more uh, toward the margins. So the question would be, how, how, do, how do we live and, and react? Because as we move forward culturally and as we move forward globally, proponents of the gospel, if you're a proponent of the gospel and if you're a proponent of Judeo-Christian values, you're just going to be... You're going to be pushed to the edge, and the idea, the dream of the of the culture is to silence you. And if you don't think that's true, you look at what's going on in the state of North Carolina. They the the legislature signed the put forth the bill. The governor signed it. Really, uh, to quote one tweet, tweet, or at least to take a take a uh, a phrase from a, t- a tweet, they signed a bill to to protect gender normal people. And man, they are getting backlash from corporate America. They're getting backlash from local politicians and, and backlash from people uh, that support that agenda. It's, it's really interesting. The, the, the one I find kind of interesting is, is PayPal, who was going to bring a, they were going to bring a business to, to Charlotte. I think they're going to have four, 400 or so workers. And, and they've said, no, we're, we're, we're not going to go. We would never go to a place that's so discriminatory and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, according to one of the representatives, I read an article last night, uh, according to one of the, actually this morning, one of the, one of the state representatives discovered that PayPal currently operates in 25 nations where homosexuality is illegal. Five of them, it's punishable by the death penalty, and they're okay doing business there, but here at home in our own backyard, 
they're going to stand up and say, hey, you discriminate. So it's a little bit, little bit hypocritical, at least uh, from my perspective. But that just gives you an idea of this tension that we live in. That, you know, we all, I mean, everybody has an agenda. I, I mean, I've, I've got one. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to share this without, uh, I have an opinion. I'm trying not to offer mine, uh, but I do have one. Um, and we could talk about, um, you know, the, the, the global terror threat is just incredible. Uh, what has happened in the last 15 or so years uh, and just how this is, is continuing to bring uh, itself to the, to the forefront. Now, now I, I bring all this up not really to offer an opinion. I, I, that's not my point. And, and I don't bring it up to, to stir the pot. But I bring it up because, because I, want to, I want us to wrestle kind of with the, with the question that, that as you live out your biblical values, your deeply held traditional values regarding religious freedom, uh, regarding uh, our culture and, and different things, there, there's going to be, it's going to become more and more difficult and there's going to be a cost for you and for me to stand up for what I believe. And uh, it's just going to be costly. And I bring that up just to say, man... Things really aren't going to get better. They're not getting better, and they're not necessarily going to get better. And and I, I'm just going to go ahead and say this, and some of you probably won't appreciate it, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, what you need to know is we're, we're not an election away from spiritual utopia. Don't buy into the idea if we just elect the right guy or girl, I don't think... The right one is in the race, whatever that means. I don't know. But, uh, but, but even if they were, we're, we're not going to vote our way into spiritual utopia. We're not going to return to our quote unquote Christian nation roots, you know, back in the day of uh, leave it to be. That's not happening. We're not going back there. And it probably wasn't as grand as we thought it was, but it, it seems to be today. But we're not going to go back there. And so, so what you need to understand that you say, well, well, that's pretty negative and that's, you know, pretty pessimistic. And I would say, yes, you're right. But think about this. If you're, and I'm going to get theological, but if you're a pre-tribulation, pre-millennial, uh, follower of Christ in terms of eschatology, you say, what in the world are you talking about? Okay, let me explain. If you believe that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to take his church out before the great tribulation and then there's going to be a great tribulation and then comes the thousand-year millennial reign, if, if that's your theology, then by nature you're pessimistic because scripturally what has to happen is before Jesus comes for his church and ultimately comes to, uh, to judge the world, things have got to get worse before they can get better. So why would we expect that, man, if we just, if we just get a couple good elections under our belt and if we just preach the word, man, everything's going to get good. Now that may have been what America's been about, but when you study the world history and, and the history of Christianity, Christians have always, we've always been uh, on the margin. Maybe not here, but our brothers and sisters around the world, that's how they operate. And for us, I mean, we, I mean, when I grew up, you just went to church, man. It was something you did, and everybody thought it was cool. You go to India. You go to Pakistan or, or Iraq or, or many places in Africa, and you get up and go to church, man. It's like painting a bullseye on your back. 
saying, attack me. And so we shouldn't be surprised. Now, but, but I don't say all that to, to preach a message on the second coming. Because uh, I don't know when that's going to be. Uh, if you figure it out, God will change it, so don't try. Okay? It's just, He's promised, nobody knows. Okay? Uh, and I don't say all that to say, well, how bad is the world going to get? That's not my point. Here, here's, what I, here's what I believe we need to do today. What we need to do today is we need to figure out what, what can you do and what must you and I do while we wait for what Paul called in, in Titus 2.13, the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Since we live in a culture where our beliefs are, are under the gun, since we live in a culture where there's this tension between the old and the new and, and biblical values and, and, and all these different things. Since we live in that tension, and that tension's not going anywhere, how should you live? How should you learn to respond and to react? What are the things that you and I should be able to do, be willing to do? What should we be committed to do uh, in the context of a culture like that? And that's where we're going to get to this morning. Because uh, what we know is things are different than they used to be. And they're going to come different and more challenging uh, in the days ahead. So, so what's a believer to do? Well, the, the writer of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, he's writing to a church. They were mostly, they were probably almost all Jewish, mostly, if not all Jewish. Most of them were believers, though not all of them. But they were, they were in a culture that was kind of hostile. They were kind of on the margin. I mean, for them to stand up for Jesus, listen, when you were a Jewish Believer in that day, you had a bullseye on your back. And, and so they were suffering and they were struggling and they were under duress. And so the writer has penned this book, this whole treatise that we've been talking about to convince them that Jesus is better. Man, you need to stay with Jesus because Jesus is better. And we've talked about that for, for weeks and weeks and weeks. He's a, you know, he's better than Moses. He's better than Abraham. He's better than the priesthood. I mean, he's just better. And, and, and he says all that because he wants to convince them, listen, you need to hold on. You need to hang on. And what I believe that the, what God wants to say to us in a culture that is, is somewhat similar where we're being marginalized and pushed to the edge, where it's no longer so fashionable to believe what we believe. What the writer and what God's going to say through the writer is, here's what you need to do so you can function well in the place where God has you. And so that's where we are. Join me. Look down with me. Hebrews chapter 10. That's a long introduction. Hopefully we'll have time for the sermon. Uh, let's look down verse 19. We'll move quick. Therefore, brothers... And sisters, by the way. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, in other words, he's just summarized ten chapters. You remember last week we talked about Christ crucified, God was satisfied, sinners can be justified, and then now we are being sanctified. That's the whole, he said, in light of all of that, verse 22, therefore let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of, of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering 
For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see today, John near. Shall we pray? Father, would you open our hearts? And then, Father, would you open your word and would you speak your word into our heart uh, that you'd give us some practical ways, some practical things that we need to implement it into our life so that we can function well in the tension of a changing world, so that we can live by faith, so that we can stand our ground in a culture that is filled with change and filled with tension. So speak into our life. Uh, God, to follow Jesus, uh, there's a cost. Salvation is free, but to follow is costly. And Father, so help us to know that and remember that. Father, for the man, the woman, the young person here that's yet to sell out to Jesus, to totally surrender, uh, Lord, I pray that you'd inspire their hearts even though there's a cost involved. Salvation's free, but it's going to cost to follow. Lord, they would see that it's well worth the price because Jesus is Lord and he's king. So speak into our life and we'll be careful to honor you and give you the glory for all you do, Father. And we pray in Jesus' awesome and mighty name. Amen. Amen. Well, as I read through that, I hope you noticed, uh, I, hope, I hope you saw the nuance, if you will, uh, of the second coming or the return of Jesus Christ. I just believe there's a hint of that in the text. And I believe the hint comes from two arenas. One, in the middle of verse 23, he talks about uh, be careful, you know, because you're wavering. And, and so in the end, there's going to be some wavering in the faith. There's going to be some people who, who just not really sure. And so they're going to, they're going to heap up some people that will teach them what they want to hear. And they're going to follow after some guys that will open the word and say, nah, it's really not going to be like that. And so there's some wavering. And then if you look down at the end of verse 25, he says, but let us encourage one another. And then he makes that statement. And all the more as you see the day approaching, that, that day is the coming day, the, the day of the Lord. I believe that's a reference to that, which, which gives us a nuance, if you will, to the second coming of Jesus Christ. So what I, want, what I want us to think about today, what is it that you and I, based on what the writer says, what do we need to be doing so we are well equipped to function in this culture filled with tension and with the marginalization of what we believe. And so that's what we're going to talk about. And that's where we're going to, we're going to get to. And you notice what he says. Since we have confidence to enter the, the, the holy places by the blood of Jesus or, or the most holy place. Again, we talked about it last week. Man, since Jesus was crucified, God has been satisfied. And sinners like you and me, we can be justified. And then what God wants to do once we're justified, he wants to work in us this idea of being sanctified. And, and so how do we do that? Well, we begin to live out what we say we believe. And this idea of being sanctified means that, that even when it's hard, even when there may be a cost, even when there might be a price, we're willing to live out. We're willing to be sanctified. Remember last week we talked about the cutting horse, how, how, how God has cut us out and he set us apart for himself. And so, so what does that look like? Well, the writer gives us three... Uh, they're exhortations. Jonathan gave us a vocabulary lesson. So I'll give us one. They're commands. They're just commands. The writer says, okay, let us do this, and let us do this, and let us do this. 
And so what are those three uh, mandates uh, that he's given us? First of all, he says in verse 22, he says, let us draw near. Let us uh, draw near. Uh, and so... So what I would say is in in light of what Jesus has done, and I'll kind of describe that for us in just a moment, but but in light of what he's done, in light of what is going on, and in in light of what is coming down the pipe, we need to draw near. We need, and, and if you take notes, just write it down this way. We need to come close. The invitation, really it's, it's the, the mandate for the follower of Jesus is that you and me, we need to come close to God. Now, if you've been with us these last weeks and months, you know that coming close and drawing near to God was a foreign concept to the average Jew. The only Jew that ever got close to God was the great high priest, and he only got there once a year. We'll look at that in a moment. And so this was, this was foreign to them. And so that's why he summarized in verse 19 through 21. uh, Hey, we have confidence to enter the most holy place. You you can be confident to to get in there. Why? Because of the blood of Jesus. Why? Because the body that was broken for us, the the tearing of the Why? Because we have a great priest, if you will, over the house of God. And so just, just notice it means to come close. The great Greek scholar A.T. Robertson, he said the tense of this verb tells us that, that what it means is, is to let us keep on coming to the holy place. Now the holy place, all that is, that's a reference to God's presence. I mean, when, when the high priest went behind the veil, what did he do? He went into the presence of God. Because God, God manifested himself on the mercy seat. And, and so the idea is, is we're to keep on coming to the presence of God, to the sympathizing and great high priest. Uh, Robertson says, rather than deserting him, but, but, but to daily use him to minister and encourage. And so here's a question. How regularly, how often do you come close? Do you just come close to, to God through Jesus? How often do you just come up and, and, and sit close to him and to, to allow him to speak into your life and to allow, uh, you, him to minister into you. The writer says that we're to come with a true heart. The idea is that we're to come with sincerity. But he also says we're to come in full assurance of faith. Now, a, a nuance of that is that, that you're to come, that I'm to come, that we're to come to God in, in full assurance of faith means we're, we're to come expecting to meet with God. We're to come expecting. When, when you when you get up of a morning, and I hope you get up in the morning and I open the Bible, I hope you spend time with God. When you come sit down with your Word and or with the Bible and with the Word and, and sit down with God, do you really expect Him to meet with you? I mean, really, the the God of the universe. Do you expect Him to meet with you? Because the writer says that we're to draw near. With a true heart in full assurance, fully expecting that God is going to meet with us. And then look at that next phraseology. This is so interesting because it's, it sounds like something that, that I think it's not. Because he says, with our hearts sprinkled 
uh, uh, let me, I can't quote it, so let me say it exactly. Uh, verse, in verse 22, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with, with pure water. It, it, it almost sounds like we're to get ourselves cleaned up and then get into the presence of God. Now, here's a, here's a side note. Right in your margin, or just to, write down the, the, the verse, 1 Peter 2 9. That verse says that we are a whole, we, that you are a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Now here's what that means. In God's sight, when you come to faith in Christ, what God sees you as, He sees you as a, a priest. That's why He says you are a royal, royal being kingly. You are a kingly priesthood. Now, now, now what could, what could the pre, what could the high priest do? The high priest on the day of atonement could go behind the veil, the most, into the most holy place. Now, you say, why are you talking about this? We've been talking about it for a few weeks. Here's what's interesting. Today in my devotional reading, remember last week I talked about how I really feel like, uh, man, I've said this, you know, I felt like what I said last week, I said the week before. Well, guess where I, this morning, guess where I opened Leviticus 16. Guess what I was there to read about? The atonement about the high priest getting ready to go into the presence of God. You see, I mean, God's just trying to teach us this stuff. He's trying, maybe he's just trying to teach me and he's letting you listen. I, I don't know. But he keeps bringing this stuff. But, but think about it. I mean, just so imagine that you're a priest. Now, in order for the priest to get ready to go into the presence of God, you know what he had to do? He, he, had, to, he had to bring a bull and a goat. Had to bring the bull to goat for the sin offering. In fact, turn all the way to, go to Leviticus chapter 16. This will be a fun experience. You don't spend a lot of time there. I don't spend a lot of time there. Leviticus, third book in the Bible. Go to Genesis, turn right, and then just go Exodus, Leviticus. Okay, let's find our place. I want you to look there at verse 16 or chapter 16. Let me give you a couple of verses. Let me just read part of this. Again, Aaron's the, the high priest. Here's what it says, verse 2. And the Lord said to Moses, now watch this. We've been talking about this. Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark. Look at this phrase. Why, why shouldn't he come? So that he may not die. I mean, imagine. 364 days a year, the, the, the greatest priest of Israel could not go into the presence of God. One day he could go in, but let's read on. Let's see what he has to do uh, to get in. He says, "For I will not, for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron, but in this way, Aaron shall come to the holy place with a bull from the herd as a sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering. And then, and watch this. And this connects. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body, and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. Now listen to this. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. In other words, he's got to be washed clean to go into the presence of God. And secondly, he has to, or or firstly, he has to have the offering. Look down at verse 11. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement, that is, to turn away the wrath of God, for himself and for his house. And then verse 14, And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat and on the east side and in front of the mercy seat. And so he shall sprinkle the blood. Now, now listen, stay with me. This is going to connect, I promise. So if we go back to Hebrews, it says, in order to draw near, you've got to have your heart sprinkled clean 
from an evil conscience. In order to draw near, you've got to have your body washed with pure water. That's what the priest had to do to get into the presence of God. But you know what happened? Do you know what happened the moment you gave your life to Jesus? Do you know what happened? Your heart was sprinkled clean. From an evil conscience. In Hebrews 10.22, that word sprinkled, it, just give you a little lesson here. It, it, it was a, it was a, it's a perfect, it's in the perfect tense. It means something happened way back here. But what happened here, the, the results of that is perfect. In other words, it's going and going and going and going and going. And so when you gave your life to Jesus, He sprinkled your heart clean from an evil conscience. And he washed your body, if you will, with pure water. Jonathan didn't know this, but he talked about putting on the, the royal robes of Christ. Well, 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 what happened when you come to faith in Jesus, man, you're made clean. And so you have the right. You have the right to go into the most holy place, into the presence of the living God any time you want to. And so the writer says, listen, draw, you should come close. He said, you should draw near. Listen, the days are coming. The days are here. We need to be in the presence of God. We don't have to wait. We can draw near, but you got to make the choice. You got to decide, hey, I want to be with Jesus. Some of you remember this story. I, I, I told it. Two and a half years ago, it's not even my story, but it's, it's good, so I'm going to tell you. Tom Nelson, he's pastor at Denton Bible, he tells a story that somebody gave him and his family a Datsun. It was a show dog. And he said this thing was about eight or nine months old. He said this dog was, was perfect. He said it was the perfect dog. He said they gave me a doghouse that took four or five of us to carry it. He said the doghouse was perfect. It, it had shingles. Had, I mean, I mean, it had a roof, had shingles, had had a heater, air conditioner. He said, "This perfect dog. You had to buy perfect dog food." He said, "You know, I had to buy the high dollar stuff." And he said, "You know, this dog was so perfect." He said, "I couldn't name it Spot or Jingo." He said, "It had to have a name." So we called this dog Sebastian because he was a show dog. And he said, "There's only one problem with Sebastian. He wouldn't come when I called." Said he was, he said he was perfect. Man, you look at him, man, he was soothing to the eye. Said he was a great dog, but he wouldn't come when I called. He said the only time he would come to me, he said when I took him out for a walk, he said there was a neighbor had a big Doberman. He said when that big Doberman started barking at him, then Sebastian would come up close because he needed me and he was desperate. And he said, but that's the only time he'd come close. How many of us are show dogs when it comes to God? We stand off out here. But now when the Doberman starts barking at us, we come up close. But on a daily basis, we're not. We're show dogs. You know what God's looking for? God's, I guess you call them lap dogs. That's, you know, people carry them around in their purse. You've seen them. They, they, you know, they go with them everywhere. They, it kind of bothers me. I hope I don't hurt your feelings. But it kind of bothers me. I mean, you see somebody and they're driving down the road and, and their dog's all up in their lap licking them. I mean, it's all up under them. Can't get away from them. 
a lap dog? Are you a show dog when it comes to God? Or are you a lap dog? Because what God wants from you and me is us to get up under Him and to come close. And the reason Jesus paid the price for us is so we could come close. Do you come close when you get up in the morning and get along? Do you expect him to meet with you? Because he's invited you and me into his presence. So he commands us to come close. If we're going to do well, if we're going to function well in a culture uh, of tension, we got to learn to come close. There's a second thought. Go back to Hebrews um, chapter 10. The second command, if you will, mandate, exhortation, whatever you want. You can call it whatever you want to, but the second one is, is what I would call simply to hold tight. Notice verse 23. He says there, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Uh, some of your translations may say the confession of our faith. Uh, the word actually is hope, but the idea is the hope that emanates from our belief, our system of beliefs. In, in other words, uh, what he's saying is you need to hold on to the profession of your hope. Hope being the fact that you believe that indeed Jesus Christ lived and indeed he died and indeed he was crucified. And in doing that, he satisfied God and that one day Jesus is going to come again. And one day he is going to part the heavens and he's going to call his church out and, and he's going to take us away. And, and, and because that's true, the writer says you need to hold on to that. You need to hold on to that because they were wavering. They were wondering, is, it, is he going to come? Is he really true? Is he really who and what he said he was? Uh, I'll say this about, interestingly enough, uh, Tom Nelson in that message I, I referenced, that story I told, he, he uh, 30 years ago, he preached a sermon on this particular text, verse 23, and I wrote this quote down because I wanted to share it with you. But he's, this is 30 years ago, in like two weeks, March 23rd, I think it was. He said this. He said, now listen to this. 30 years ago, he said, he said, Christians of our day don't hold fast. They are bending to the winds of change. I wonder what he would say this morning about the Christians of our day. We are bending. We are not holding fast. Many uh, believers are, are marginalizing their faith. They're, they're cowering down because somebody says, well, if you, you, you gotta be more loving or you can't be judgmental or, or you gotta be this or you can't be that. And so listen, you need to hold fast. Cause can I tell you something? If you really believe what you say you believe, the day, uh, you live, the day's gonna come where it's gonna cost you something. There's going to be some persecution. Now, we really don't understand persecution here in America, but we might. We probably will, like they do in other places. Uh, in other places, when you name the name of Jesus, when you stand for righteousness, uh, you go to the Middle East, uh, you go to China, you go to Africa, you go to, uh, to Malaysia, you go to some of these places. When you name the name of Jesus, you might as well put a bullseye on your back and say, hey, hey, persecute me. That's becoming, in some of our college campuses, you know, that's the norm. You stand up for Jesus, they're going to ridicule you. They're going to they're mock you and laugh at you. And they're going to do everything they can to silence you. But we shouldn't be surprised. Did you know Paul said to Timothy, listen, listen to what Paul said to Timothy in uh, 
2 Timothy 3, verse 12, Paul says, all who desire, indeed, he says, indeed. In other words, think about this. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All. You know what the key there is? Do you know what the key is? All who desire to live godly. See, if, see if, if our desire is to live godly, then some people aren't going to like it. And they're going to label you. They're going to call you a homophobe. They'll call you a, a narrow-minded bigot. It, 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 you know, forget about some of the, the, the social issues. If you're willing to say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and there's no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved, people, they're not going to like that. You narrow-minded bigot, how dare you say there's one way to God? Because the Word says there's one way to God. But I'm just saying, listen, if you desire to live a godly life, there's going to be a cost. I mean, salvation's free, but it costs something, and it's going to cost more somethings if we're going to stand for Jesus. And so we've got to kind of decide. I mean, what is your desire? if your desire is to be popular, then you can't live a godly life because you will not be popular. Some of you kids know this. Some of you know that if you sit at the table at lunch, and you, you, the wisest thing to do is just keep your mouth shut, otherwise it's going to be an argument. And so you just got to decide. But, but the writer says, listen, we need to stand firm. You need to hold on. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. So we need to hold fast. We need to draw near or come close. Third, I gotta move on. We need to consider others. Notice, uh, notice verse 24 and 25. It's kind of interesting. If you have the NIV, it's, uh, it gives you three different lettuces and that's really not right. The, the, the emphasis there is, is in verse 24 and, and what he says is let us consider how to stir one another up. Uh, the word consider is pretty interesting because it means to give careful thought to. And what the writer is saying is you should give some thought. In fact, he says you should give careful thought to how you might stir others up to love and good deeds. Do you ever think about, do you ever think about how you motivate people? To do good and to serve God? Do you ever sit, sit down and think about, okay, how can I motivate? You, you know, the word, the word there to stir up, some of you, uh, some of your translations will, will use the word to spur on, or, or it might even be the word to provoke, to provoke. And the writer's saying, you need to give some thought. How do you provoke people? Not in a bad way, but in a good way. The word in the original language is paroxysm. If you're, if you work at the doctor's office, you know the word paroxysm, uh, really is the idea of a violent outburst of, uh, of behavior or activity. Uh, you ever walk out of the house early in the morning, one of these spring mornings, and all of a sudden you just begin to sneeze almost uncontrollably, and it, you know, your, your nose begins to burn, you begin to sneeze, and you, your allergies just get you. You've had that happen, right? That's a paroxysm. That's a, a sudden or violent outburst of symptoms, if you will. Well, that's the word 
the writer is using here. And what he's saying is that, that, that we need, we, we need to give some thought to how can, how can we, how can you motivate somebody to, to, to act? You know, sometimes when people have an allergic reaction, sometimes they sneeze and, and their nose runs. Sometimes they break out in hive. Sometimes they have a racing heartbeat. And, and, and so what the writer's saying is, Minda, how can, have you given some thought to how you can make somebody's heart beat for Jesus to serve him and to live for him? And so in a culture like this, we, our goal is not just to survive, but the writer says our goal is to provoke people, <laughs> to provoke them to love. And good deeds. Are, are you are, are you aware that we're to be doing that? And the writer says we need to give some thought to that. But not only that, he says we should give some thought to to how we encourage others. Now we're to provoke people to do love and good deeds. So if somebody's listless and sluggish, then then we ought to spur them on. I mean, our goal is to spur them on and, and make them move forward. But on the other hand, there's some people in in this day and age. We're going to see some people. Man, they're, they're not they're not listless. They're man, they're they're beat down. And they're just worn down. Man, they, they've been beat up by the culture. They've been beat up by society. They've been beat up by life. And what the writer's saying is that we need to give careful attention so that we can encourage them to put courage into them. That's what it means. To encourage means to put in some courage. So let me ask you. Who in your life, you're a follower of Jesus, most of us are, who in your life are you provoking to love and good deeds. Who in your life are you putting courage into so they will walk faithfully with Jesus and not forsake? We see that term forsake meeting together. We dealt with that in a sermon a few weeks ago, so I won't go there. But, 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 but who's in your life? See, we live in a culture of tension. We live in a culture to where, where it's, you know, it's not fashionable and it's not popular. And, and so the, the sluggish and the listless have to be spurred on. Uh, the downtrodden and the beat up have to be encouraged. And, and so who's God got in your life or whose life have you gotten into so that you can put courage into them and so you can help them? I'll tell you a quick story and, and, and we're going to be done. Uh, we, as you know, we talked about, I think Jonathan mentioned the wedding, uh, we had the privilege of going to the wedding last night and it was, it was fun. We enjoyed it. It was, it was beautiful. It was a great, great thing. And of course, then we went home and kind of to our regular routine. And my Saturday night routine involves uh, a pot of coffee and, and, a, and a lot of time with my sermon notes and my manuscript and my text. And, and so I, you know, I sit and I study and, and I study and I drink coffee and I stay up late. And as you know, uh, then the alarm comes early and, and I don't know how, I don't know how you, I don't know what your alarm clock is, but, but I like the iPhone, and, and here's why. When when the when the alarm goes off on your iPhone, all you got to do, if you can get your thumb on one of those two buttons, you can hit that thing, and it'll give you nine more minutes of the best sleep of the night. The best sleeping is that nine minutes after you snooze. And so at six fourteen, this thing went off, and. And I got the snooze on. And I mean, I barely just, I didn't even get my eyes open good. I just kind of reached over and got it and got it over there with me. Uh, but that, after nine minutes, the thing rang again. And so I'm a little alive or a little bit. And I'm thinking, I just felt, you know how you feel when you don't have enough sleep and you don't want to get up. And I just like, and I, I just prayed to God. I said, I said, God, I need to be awakened and I need to be energized. And I thought about the sermon, 
And I thought about the church today. And you know what we need? You know what believers need today? We need to be awakened. We, we need to be awake. And we need to be energized. It's easy to snooze. It's fun to snooze. But you don't get anywhere. And too many of us in our Christian life, you know what we're doing? We're snoozing. We need to be awakened and we need to be energized. Let's pray together. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that the body of Christ, those of us that are followers, that you would inspire us, that you would awaken us so we would draw close and come near or come close and draw near so that we would hold fast and so we would give thought to how we're spurring others on. God, awaken us, energize us. And then, Father, I would say this morning to those that are not yet followers, man, I've talked about, hey, if you follow Jesus, it's going to cost you something. Why would they sign up for that? I mean, if you're here this morning and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, why would you sign up for that? Can I just tell you why? If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old has passed away and the new things have come. If a man is in Christ, he, he, he's, he's got hope. He's got forgiveness. Your conscience of evil is sprinkled clean and, and your body's been washed with pure water and you're made new. So if you've never given your life to Jesus, I just want to tell you, man, it's free. Not a co- living for him will cost you. Salvation is free. And my hope this morning is that you give your life to Jesus. That you'd pray a simple prayer of faith and say, Lord Jesus, man, I want you to come into my life. Lord Jesus, I want you to forgive me. Man, I want to be clean. I want to be washed. I want to be made new. Jesus, come into my life and save me. Friend, the Bible says, if you call on the name of the Lord with a genuine heart, you'll be saved. Man, that's our hope for you. That's our hope for you. That you'll be saved. Believer, Our hope is that you and I would be awake, would be energized, that we would draw near, come close, and stand firm for Jesus. Father, have your way in our heart, our life today. Father, we're going to receive our offering this morning. And as we bring our offerings, man, I just want to say a word about this, Lord. I I pray that that we would give generously. The, the, The work of the kingdom is critical. The world needs to know the message of Jesus. And, uh, Lord, we... We need to bring our offering so you can take what we bring to tell the story of the gospel, the story of Jesus to a lost world. So, so use our gifts for the glory of Jesus, and we'll give him all the praise. For it's in his name I pray. Amen.